to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. On today's episode, I'm glad to welcome Mitchell Chase. He is an associate professor of biblical studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also the preaching pastor of Cosmosdale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and is the author of several books, including the book we'll be talking about today, Short of Glory, and he blogs regularly at Biblical Theology on Substack. Mitch, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I appreciate it, Aaron. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you on, that you made the time. Congratulations on the book. We're recording uh, on release week, and this episode will be coming out uh, just uh, the next week after, so congratulations on that. Uh, what's the story on Cosmosdale? That is a unique name. It is a unique name. Uh, it's a mouthful. When we when we tell people about our church, uh, it, we often have to explain the origin. Um, so south from our church is a is a cement plant, and it's called Cosmos Cement Plant. K O S M O S. And when mm-hmm. Cosmos Cement Plant um, was uh, built all those decades ago, this became known as the Cosmosdale area in which we lived. And so like many churches will do, uh, they will pull their church name from something in the area or the street they're on. And so Cosmosdale Baptist Church seemed natural. Okay. Yeah. So I was just wondering if it had anything to do with the Greek word cosmos and, you know, did did somebody way back. Yeah. Did somebody (laughs) way back decide they wanted to name it, you know, yeah. <laughs> it is so, providentially nice that that also is true, um, yeah. but uh, but it was not the reason for the name back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. So cement plant has nothing to do with cos- with the Greek cosmos. Yeah. It does not. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, so uh, before we get into the book, tell me about where you're from and uh, how you got into being a professor, what led you in that direction. And yes. uh, what you what do you teach at Southern? So our family is from South Texas. We moved in 2010 uh, to come to Louisville. So this makes uh, about 13 years this summer uh, since we've been in Louisville. And over those 13 years, uh, I spent several years as a doctoral student at Southern Seminary. And I did a PhD in biblical studies. Uh, I have the joy to teach there now as a professor in biblical studies. And um, my, my goal um, in coming to Louisville was to complete a doctorate. And you, we didn't know what the Lord would have for us if we'd go back uh, elsewhere, if we'd stay. And um, in 2012, I started becoming the, I became the preaching pastor at Cosmosdale Baptist Church. Uh, and I've been there now for uh, 11 years. And um, so my my jobs uh, in, in these recent years have included you know, teaching for Boyce College and Southern Seminary uh, in some capacity. Uh, and I was an adjunct there for many years. I um, have been the preaching pastor at Cosmosdale during that time as well. And uh, so life typically looks like, you know, working with students in the academic side, uh, investing in pastoral ministry here with our church. And it's really a best of both worlds kind of thing. Um, I love what I do, and the Lord's been very kind uh, to open up those possibilities for us to to serve uh, in this city and at these uh, places. Um, for for uh, 
the last year, I just completed my first academic year as an associate professor at biblical, of biblical studies. And uh, so I hope to enjoy uh, many semesters of, of teaching for Southern and investing in those students. Uh, that's what life in Louisville is like right now. My wife, Stacy and I have, uh, we have four boys. And uh, so in addition to um, pastoral and academic ministry, uh, we love uh, being here with our boys. They're 14 all the way to age six. Hmm. Life is uh, very full. Um, yeah. I was at T-ball practice last night, and so you know you have uh, a lot going on. Uh, these yeah. are these are years packed with uh, those kinds of things uh, as it goes, and so we're just uh, trying to ride the wave, you know, and hold on tight. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I understand. I have I have two kids, uh, one girl, one boy, and yeah. so having four boys, I can imagine that is a high energy house. So There's a uh, lot of the Legos and lightsabers. <laughs> everywhere yeah <laughs> it's yeah. very lively yeah uh what part of south texas are you from i grew up south of houston in a small okay. town called edna my wife okay. is from houston itself and uh, we met in college and so all of our families are in texas and uh, we get to go back and, and see them from time to time and they yeah. come to louisville so when we came to louisville we basically came where we had no family here um we have we've made sure our church family has become our louisville family yeah that's great yeah, I was born in Beaumont. Nice. Yep, and yeah. so uh, all my all my uh, dad's side of the family is still over there in southeast Texas. Kind yeah, of yeah. My around. the um, the small town was near uh, Victoria, and so Victoria, Texas, is you know we'd go to the mall on weekends in Victoria, go to the movie theater there, and uh, yeah. So Beaumont and several other places, you know, you hear a lot about these uh, towns and cities growing up. Uh, Texas, as you know, is a huge huge place. Um, mm -hmm. You can drive all day and still be in Texas. Um, but <laughs> nonetheless, um, yeah, we've been able to enjoy uh, many of those those uh, well-known locations in the state, including Beaumont. Um, I mean, I haven't been there since I was a young boy, but yeah, all part of the, part of the different uh, experiences of travel growing up. Yeah, very cool. So today we're talking about Shorter Glories, this new book you have coming out. It is a biblical and theological exploration of the fall. So tell us about why did you write this book? What was what was the genesis of this book in your uh, in your mind? <laughs> Pun intended. Nerdy, um, nerdy joke there. Uh, it's a no, book it's on Genesis well, three. So <laughs> very well played. Well played. Yeah. Um, you know, Genesis three is a, is a chapter that has uh, entranced me for a lot of years, and I, I really wanted to um, at some point uh, try to tackle a project that engaged its content in a very uh, slow walking kind of way from really uh, for the beginning to the end of that chapter, but to do so um, in a way that captured what I also love. And that is to um, explore the various connections among biblical passages and themes uh, to see how the development of different things across Scripture uh, can be discerned and, um, and defended. If I, if I were to do something on Genesis 3, then I thought I want to I wanna do so with a, a biblical theology emphasis. And uh, the subtitle, A Biblical and Theological Exploration of the Fall, is my effort to do that. Uh, it's my effort to look at Genesis 3, but with an eye toward the larger themes and big storyline of Scripture itself. Um, you know, this, this chapter 
has a, a bit of everything that intrigues readers. Um, this story is famous with the conversation that takes place with Eve and the serpent. Um, there's the fall of Adam and Eve as God's image bearers that takes place in this story. The ensuing consequences and judgments uh, that are decreed. Mm -hmm. There's uh, the messianic hope uh, that is glimpsed in Genesis 3.15. Um, yeah, I remember reading several years ago in, in Greg Beale's book, A New Testament Biblical Theology, Dr. Beale said um, the, the stories and, or the uh, themes and, and uh, theologies of, of Scripture are really rooted in seed form in the early chapters of Genesis. That, that's a fascinating statement to consider how important, how pivotal these early chapters really are to setting up the biblical storyline. Um, well, that's certainly true of Genesis 3. I think Beale is right about these early chapters of Genesis, and, um, and I think I tried to show that in Genesis 3. What all is really rooted here, and uh, what all can be teased out across the biblical storyline? Well, Genesis 3 is a, a rich, rich biblical chapter, and um, I don't plan to write a uh, books on individual biblical chapters in the years ahead. Um, I don't think you could necessarily make a case that every biblical chapter needs its own book. Uh, but I, I, do, I do think in all seriousness, uh, Genesis 3 is so pivotal as a threshold in the biblical story that it will do well for us as readers if we will meditate on its content and uh, really slow down to reflect on what's here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's one. That's the reason I was interested in talking to you about this book. I don't do, um, I don't necessarily do a lot of uh, theological, specific, uh, theology specific episodes here on the show. Hmm. Um, you know, we're interested in building a Christian worldview and understanding how it applies to life. But whenever I saw your book, and that is dealing specifically with the fall, you know, no, that there's a theology specific topic that's very relevant to building a Christian worldview. So that's why I was interested in talking to you about it. Now, whenever you use the term biblical theology in relation to what the kind of work you're doing in this book, can you explain to our audience what you mean by that? What, what does that term yeah. mean? When I use the phrase biblical theology, I have in mind paying attention to the way the biblical authors advance their arguments across the canon of scripture. I have in mind the use of earlier scripture by later authors. I have in mind the the inter, intertextual, interbiblical connections among texts and characters that testifies to the providence of God, the unity of the Bible, the divine authorship of the scriptures. Uh, so when we try to do biblical theology faithfully, as, uh, as Bible readers, what I think we're trying to do is to read a particular passage in light of the bigger things going on in the Bible, uh, because every passage is located at some point in redemptive history. Things have happened. Things are going to happen. God has made promises and covenants. And when you come to a passage in Scripture, it's good to say, all right, where am I in the biblical storyline? What has God been doing that mm -hmm. gives rise to this particular episode? this particular set of laws, uh, this particular uh, oracle from a prophet? What's been going on? And then um, where is this going? What's on the other side of this in later scripture? How might these things testify of the person and work of Christ to come? Uh, so biblical theology is interested in, uh, in, the, in the interconnections, the relationships among the biblical texts, uh, because we believe that uh, as Christians, the Bible is inspired. We have inspired writings to study, and, um, and in studying it, we're able to discern that God has, by his providence, um, 
united together the Old and New Testaments in such a way that there is coherence. Mm. Um, there is a, 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 a coherence among all the biblical writings in the covenantal uh, stream of Scripture. So biblical theology is interested in those kinds of things. We're just trying to read the Bible faithfully, and we're trying mm. to pay attention to how the biblical authors use earlier Scripture. Uh, so that, that's kind of what I have in mind with, with biblical theology as a phrase. Yeah, that's good. And and I wanted you to talk about it because I know that you mean something specific about, you know, this frames the way that you're approaching the work you're doing um, and what yeah. the goals that you're trying to accomplish. Um, but for those who haven't gone to seminary, you know, that means it, biblical theology means something completely different. You know, it, it, people just yeah. usually assume it as it's theology that's faithful to the Bible, which, well, which of course, that's, that's the goal. That's the goal. That but I know in in totally seminary, cool. we mean something a little bit more specific by the type of work we're doing there. Well, so I you start the readers book. Will, oh, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add to to that that you know what readers will notice then as they are looking in the uh, chapters is that I'm talking about Genesis three, but I'm also not only talking about Genesis three. And, and the reason I will bring up later Old Testament passages, later New Testament passages, is because I think that our progression into the Bible storyline gives us more and more light and clarity about what's happened earlier. And so I'm eager to understand Genesis 3, but I want to understand Genesis 3 in light of the whole canon. And uh, this is, this is, if you will, a kind of canonical reading of Genesis 3, as much as, much as I could write one. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. So you start the book by uh, talking about the Garden of Eden and calling it a sacred space. What do you mean by that? The the garden as a sacred space, and yeah. why is it significant to view it in this way? Garden makes us think of something in our modern day that um, won't really help us as we try to get to Genesis two and three. When I when we think of gardens, uh, we think about people tilling rows of dirt. They're ready to plant seeds. They're ready to water these things. They're looking to harvest time. Um, they're thinking about gardens in those ways. In the ancient Near East, um, when a king would plant a garden, it, it was not just about rows of dirt. It was a paradise. It was a, a luxurious, uh, beautiful, and expansive location. And, uh, and here you have the Lord, the king of heaven and earth. He has made the world. He's put his image bearers in a place called Eden, and in Eden, he plants a garden. Um, he's going to uh, put Adam in the garden. From Adam, he's going to make Eve. And so these image bearers will be in this garden. So this is not just like a, 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 a set of rows of dirt, okay, where people are going out where they're planting and tending stuff. Mm -hmm. This is a, a paradise, and in the midst of the garden, there are trees, which means two trees, which means we're to envision um, a, a very luxurious space, okay? So, so that's uh, idea number one, is just trying to calibrate our thinking away from maybe what a modern garden brings to mind. Um, and, and in addition to that, later scriptures employ the language of the eastern entrance, like in the tabernacle and in the temple, um, and an eastern entrance was first used in the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden. And the cherubim with the flaming swords are on the eastern side to prevent reentry. Um, you also have Adam 
placed in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 and in verse uh, 15 to work it and to keep it. And in the first five books of the Old Testament in the Torah, to work and to keep, they occur as verbs separately, but when they occur together as a pair, it's intriguing where later texts will use this pair for priestly work at the sanctuary of Yahweh, hmm. which means Adam is a kind of proto-priest. He's a priestly figure who's also um, required to subdue and exercise dominion and to expel what would be unclean, such as this, you know, wily serpent uh, that ends up in the Garden of Eden. Um, there are various elements of this garden, including um, not just the, the tree imagery, but things like gold and jewels that are employed um, in such in places like Ezekiel 28, where the Garden of Eden is depicted as like a sanctuary um, all those many centuries ago. Now, that's that could be a big paradigm shift for readers. The Garden of Eden, we might not have thought about it in, in sanctuary-like terms. Mm -hmm. If we think of a temple, we might think of something where there's pillars, there's walls, that's the temple, it's enclosed, um, something like that. That's not quite the picture we have with the Garden of Eden, though. It can still be sanctuary-like. It can be called something like a proto-temple, a temple before mm -hmm. there were typical ancient or Eastern temples. Mm -hmm. And um, another reason that this is uh, confirmed, I think, in the biblical text is because the presence of God dwells with Adam and Eve in this garden. A temple, a sanctuary, is what it is because of the presence of the deity. So in the ancient world, if somebody you know went to a temple, they believed that the representation of their deity was there. You know, that yeah. matter, or the very power and presence of the deity was there. Uh, for, so for these reasons, Aaron, it's good for us as, as interpreters to consider the Garden of Eden in temple-like categories, sanctuary terms. And if we do that, I think that opens up more understandings, windows of insight as to what's going on in that sacred space. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think it is like you said, a paradigm shift for a lot of us who growing up, whenever we heard it taught in Sunday school or read it and we read garden, we think of, uh, like you were saying, rows of dirt. We think of basically a farm and Adam right. and Eve were God's farm hands, you know, uh, but not, but not what you're describing. And, uh, and I think there's incredible implications of that, especially what you were talking about there, Adam as a proto priest, uh, put place in the garden to work and keep. I'd love to come back to that later um, yeah. and talk about, you know, the relevance of that to our lives. But uh, the second chapter in the book is about the two trees. And I, I really appreciate that because I've always found, um, you know, even as someone who is, it's my job to teach the Bible and, and I, I've taught through these chapters before, just in my own personal reading, I've always found the two trees really difficult to understand mm -hmm. and, uh, and and grasp the, the meaning of. So walk us through uh, that part of the story. These trees appear first in Genesis 2, right? And then in mm -hmm. Genesis 3, um, there is the eating of one and the barring from eating of the other. And these two trees are called the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And an assumption that I used to have for a long time uh, was that, uh, you know, one of these trees is good and one of these trees is bad. Uh, 
And, and the bad tree is the one that has evil in the title, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and yet, you know, over the years, that has been uh, challenged, I think, by good things that I had read and, uh, and teachers that were trying to help me think about the text. Because knowing good and evil is about wisdom. You see this in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. To, to be able to discern good and evil is, is to enable one to then live wisely, to choose the right way, to reject the wrong way. And uh, a knowledge of good and evil um, doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be something that is actually desirable, uh, that somebody would grow in wisdom. Uh, so Greg Beale and, and others have sometimes referred to this particular tree as the tree of wisdom, uh, just as a shorthand way of trying to get at what that phrase of the knowledge of good and evil is about. And, um, and then Adam and Eve are to trust God uh, with this tree. They're to trust the Lord's timing. They are not to eat of this tree. It doesn't mean they would never eat of it um, in the future, perhaps, but it means that they are not to eat of it when God has said, do not eat of it. Uh, they are to not seize moral autonomy for themselves. They're to trust the wisdom of God because this tree represents wisdom. And they're not to seize it uh, at their own self-appointed timing. I instead, it needs to be uh, uh, in submission to God all the way through. So if we think about that tree as a tree of wisdom, Adam and Eve have this other tree called the tree of life. And I think Genesis 3 gives us some layers on this tree, um, the, uh, metaphorically speaking, and the layers are that this tree represented a kind of life they could have, but did not yet experience. In Genesis 3.22, the Lord says that the man must be removed, lest he take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That signifies to us then that this tree held forth a kind of life that Adam now was not to have in his sinful state, but that nonetheless was something held out in the Garden of Eden as a kind of life for the people of God, a life God had designed for his image bearers. And now in, in their sin, Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. This tree of life seems to imply more than just physical earthly life. It seems to, it seems to foreshadow, I think, what glorification will basically confirm at the return of Christ a kind of bodily and moral and spiritual vitality um, that we are becoming all that God has made us to be. The tree of life, mm -hmm. eternal life, Im, uh, embodied immortality, the, these kinds of phrases. Um, so the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, these two trees stand distinct. And neither of these trees is bad. But the Lord is giving instructions to uh, his image bearers to follow, to Adam first uh, to follow, and then probably from Adam to Eve, uh, that they would follow these instructions and submit to God's lordship and trust him with all matter of life and wisdom. And of course, the evil one says, but did God really say... Or, you, know, you won't surely die. So challenging the wisdom and words of God, uh, because, of course, that's what we do when we rebel against the Lord and seize moral autonomy. We are rejecting what God has made known and, and pursuing something that we think would be better uh, in our foolishness. And, uh, and so that's what they begin to do in Genesis 3, uh, all in connection with these trees. Um, it, it's good for us to think about them as well, because the tree of life 
not only appears in Genesis 3. Yeah. It's uh, mentioned outside Genesis in the Old Testament, only elsewhere in the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, the tree of life and the pursuit of wisdom are uh, intertwined. Hmm. It's as if we are meant to walk in the life of God by wisdom, and even outside of Eden, this is echoed in our image-bearing experience, that coming to know God and to fear the Lord and to ultimately have trust in Christ as our refuge, we are beginning to experience what it means to taste of this Edenic life. And then resurrection from the dead, I think, brings things to a culmination of what the tree of life pointed to. Um, if Adam and Eve are you know, kicked out of the garden, a, a reader could fairly ask, well, are we just barred from the tree of life forever? And, and I think the answer is, well, no, in Christ, we will experience everything that the tree of life symbolized. Um, Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And we will be raised like him. We will be glorified as he is. Our lowly bodies will be made like his when he descends from heaven. Um, and, and so I think the tree of life has a abiding um, impact on our Christian hope. It is a loss, to be sure, so that when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, that is a sad and sorrowful thing. And yet the redemptive epic of God's plan across the scriptures is that Christ himself will be for us the kind of life we were made for. In Christ, we will experience it. I know I'm going on a bit now, but you know that's the, that's yeah. the idea of the, the two trees and, and yeah. how that ties into some larger things. Yeah, so, so we see the tree of life carrying on in significance very clearly in the history of redemption and, uh, and, and salvation. It's referred to again, you said in Proverbs, you know, it, it shows up again also in Revelation. That's right. Um, what about the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Is, is there any references back to that in Scripture? Um, or like, how do we, is there any ongoing significance of that for us today yeah. as we think about salvation as there is for the tree of life? So you, you find references, uh, like I had mentioned, to the tree of life, and that doesn't continue with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I do think we could imply the presence of what that tree represents by using the language of wisdom. Because if the tree of life, of no, uh, I'm sorry, if the tree of not the knowledge of good and evil is understood to be a tree of wisdom, well, we are called to trust the Lord, to submit to him, to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in Proverbs 1. It is the beginning of wisdom, we're told in Proverbs 9. And so in Proverbs 1 and in Proverbs 9, and even at the end of Proverbs, uh, the fear of the Lord is this very prominent theme that helps us to see uh, what wisdom is based in, to revere and love the Lord, to fear the Lord in a way that honors him, not just to tremble before him, but to, to honor him and to reverence the Lord, um, that this is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. We see really how that went wrong in the Garden of Eden then, because Adam and Eve's actions were irreverent. Adam and Eve's actions were dishonorable. Um, they were not honoring the Lord and they were not revering the Lord in taking of that tree, were they? And so there is a, a, a rejection of God's wisdom in trying to seize the fruit from that tree. Mm -hmm. we, we could say, I think, uh, Aaron, that for, for people seeking to rebel against God, those who are turning from his words and, and seeking to live life as if they are the gods and authorities of their own moral, you know, uh, compass, they are 
doing the same thing Adam and Eve did. They are still trying to eat of that tree in a way that violates the will and ways of God. He has called us to trust him, and rebels are not doing that. He has called us to embrace his wisdom and fear the Lord, and people who are rejecting God's law are not doing that. Uh, so in a way, the imagery of the tree of life can continue um, as, as in one sense what indicts sinners. We are continuing to seize uh, our, our uh, moral grounds and, and saying with a, a fist to heaven, you know, no, we are seeking to defy the Lord. Um, that, that old garden sin, you know, over and over mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, when we walk wisely before the Lord and we are making Christ our refuge and we are delighting in the word of God, we are growing in wisdom. And in that sense, by submitting to the Lord's uh, word, by, by living under his glad lordship, we are embodying a life marked by knowing good and evil in the way that we ought to. Um, mm. That way we can walk wisely before him. So I, I think that both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil have some ongoing, some abiding uh, relevance for, for uh, the, the Christian disciple. Yeah, yeah, I can see that, and I agree. Yeah. So you mentioned the evil one who went and tempted Adam and Eve in the garden to eat from the knowledge, uh, eat from the tree that was um was forbidden from them uh who is the evil one how does he appear in the garden and uh yeah. what, what's the is there anything significant about him appearing as a serpent this is one of the more fascinating parts of genesis 3 isn't it the woman begins to speak to a serpent who has come yeah. to her and he's described as crafty um this serpent is not identified by name in genesis 3 but because, because we have the whole Bible and not just Genesis 3, we can keep going to realize that this arch nemesis who has come against God's image bearers is uh, described as the serpent and dragon um, in Revelation, Satan himself, uh, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the adversary. Um, we, we see this early role of his then. He comes into Genesis 3 as an adversary. Uh, he's come to undermine um, the good work of God and his image bearers by uh, tempting them to doubt the words of God. And um, the significance of this serpent form seems to be the fact that, you know, Adam and Eve were to have dominion over the animals. Mankind, as God's image bearers, are to exercise dominion and subdue. And uh, here you have this creature, this creature who exercises dominion over them. This is a very inverted way of doing things, isn't it? Because the, the serpent, with his words and actions, should have been subdued by Adam, expelled from the Garden of Eden. I mean, you just listen to the things the serpent is saying. Did God actually say? And then directly contradicting the Lord to Eve, you shall not surely die. I mean, this is just nonsense, isn't it? It's just absurd. But Adam is not functioning as a faithful priest in this scene. Um, he is not doing the duty to which he has been called by God. In fact, he is not subduing. He's, he's actually being subdued right there in the scene. There, there seems to be this uh, desire of the evil one to subvert and overthrow the goodness and order of God's creation. And um, if we take that uh, into Genesis 3, we can see that the strategy here seems to be fitting with that that larger agenda, that larger uh, 
uh, modus operandi, as they say. So you have this uh, mode of operation where he's trying to undermine the good order of God's creation. And uh, by the end of Genesis uh, 3, the damage has been done. And the man and the woman have not subdued the serpent. They have had his dominion over them exercised and are now naked, ashamed, sinful. Mm. Yeah, so is there any significance to Satan appearing as a serpent versus, you know, appearing as a raccoon or uh, another yeah, animal? As a raccoon. Well, you know, raccoon, in the ancient Raccoons world, are crafty, too. <laughs> yes, it's so crafty, so crafty. I mean, I, I think there will always be some questions about the serpent figure here that will probably evade us in terms of getting them answered. Um, and this might be one of them, too. Why this and not another? But... Um, you know, there there is in the ancient world a relationship between serpents and dragons, uh, because these are fearsome beasts. They're crafty. Uh, they are they are not to be treated lightly, uh, but are to be treated as uh, rather ominous creatures. If um, if the Bible's uh, early story here is talking about uh, the 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 evil one coming to Eve as a serpent, then the malicious and diabolical nature that's often tied to things like a dragon or a serpent, uh, it seems to fit the occasion more than mm-hmm. like a crafty raccoon would have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, yeah, because I'm, I'm just trying to wonder. Yeah. So I'm just trying to, you know, think that through and, um, yeah. and, and wonder like, is, uh, does the serpent throughout all of scripture stand for something, you know, due to Satan coming as a, uh, coming in that form. And so, well, you have this interesting situation in uh, the book of Exodus where, uh, you know, the Pharaoh has the Egypt, the uh, Israelite nation in captivity and they need to be delivered through the mighty Exodus. And we know that uh, the Pharaoh, um, there, there's the imagery of serpents that are associated with Egypt. You know, there was a, it's understood to be a, a serpent on the headdress of the Pharaoh. Hmm. Um, you even have magicians on, in Pharaoh's court, along with Moses and, and the staff uh, in Exodus, where there is some serpent transformation that is happening. Yeah. Um, so you, you, do, you do, I think, have imagery of serpents that are associated with something that is unseemly or ungodly. And, um, the, uh, the root of that, the root of that is Genesis three, you know, that's where yeah. it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, my favorite, uh, little scene from Moses's life also has to do with the serpent. It's whenever he's at the burning bush and, uh, and God is, you know, giving him, uh, the different signs and he tells him to yeah. throw a staff down and it turns to a serpent and it says, and he ran away. <laughs> and uh, I've uh, I've always loved that little scene. It makes me it makes me identify with Moses because I also hate snakes and would have ran away. Uh, so <laughs> I'm with you, Aaron. I I don't love them. There's an irony here, isn't there? Because you know those re- the readers of, or watchers of yours on the on the video can see on the cover of this book is a snake. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the only snake we'll allow in our house. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like it's it's on the cover of the book, and that's as far as I go. You know? Yeah, um, they, and Crossway did a lovely job with the cover. It is quite funny because uh, I just recoil at snakes, and I looked at this one and I was like, "Oh, now that's a beautiful snake." <laughs> <laughs> D- different context, different forms. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, after the the fall come the consequences of the fall, hmm. 
there's been a lot of debate throughout history over exactly what are the consequences of the fall and and how far do those consequences extend into the human condition and experience so uh, speak to that what are the consequences of the fall and what are some of the views that we get right here and in your opinion what are some of the misunderstandings about that well, so general statement first, I don't think that Genesis 3 is meant to be comprehensive with the effects of the fall. Um, I think it's meant to be illustrative. In, in other words, we're, we're reading about real pronouncements that the Lord has made. But, you know, according to Romans chapter 8, when the Apostle Paul is talking about creation, um, he talks about how the Lord subjected creation to futility. And that creation longs to be delivered from its decay and captivity, um, like, the, like the sons and daughters of God when their bodies are redeemed at the resurrection. So creation is groaning. And uh, the groaning and uh, agonizing sense of creation there is, is, I think, rooted in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 illustrates uh, effects of the fall. I mean, relationships are impacted. You see uh, the woman there talking, uh, being talked to in uh, verse 16 about childbearing and a relationship with her husband. And it seems that there is disruption brought to those close relationships. And this is very personal to her because, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, they are to be fruitful and to multiply. And in Genesis 2 specifically, there is the, the covenant of marriage in which that takes place. These uh, various relationships of marriage and childbearing are actually directly impacted uh, by the fall. Um, we also know that with Adam, um, he had that specific instruction in Genesis 2 uh, and in verse 15, uh, to work the ground and to keep it. And yet we know that Adam's work, it will continue just like marriage and childbearing will for Eve, but there is disruption and grief that's brought to it. And with Adam's work, you know, he's going to work the ground, but in pain. And thorns and thistles will come forth. And by the sweat of his face, he will eat bread until he dies. From dust he comes, to dust he shall return. I, th I think these uh, illustrative effects here are trying to help us see that there is a wrongness in the world because of sin. And uh, the, the grief that relationships experience, that uh, we see in nature at large, we long for these things to be overcome. Uh, we long for things to be set right. We want the effects of the fall, the, the relational conflicts, uh, the, uh, the, the, the personal and bodily uh, sorrows and health concerns, all the things that affect us individually, societally, globally. We long for the effects of the fall to be overcome because creation uh, has been subjected to futility. Paul is, I think, interpreting Genesis 3 hmm. um, there in Romans 8. Um, so where is you know, our hope coming from in light of these very strong pronouncements and uh, these very sad effects that affect our lives to this very day? Well, in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, the serpent is addressed. And when the serpent is addressed... Uh, he's told in verse 15 that enmity will be produced between your seed and her seed, talking about the woman's seed. And he shall bruise your head, talking about the victorious woman's son, 
the victorious son of the woman, he shall bruise the serp, uh, serpent's head and you shall bruise his heel. And that imagery of a striking at the heel makes sense if you're envisioning a snake on the ground because you strike low. And so we're not talking about, you know, him being bit in the shoulder. Snakes are on the ground. So this striking of the heel, it, it just continues to be in keeping with the imagery of a serpent on the ground, right? Um, but... But I think that the serpent in the ancient world was viewed to be a deadly animal, like in uh, Numbers 21, with its venom. Obviously, there are non-venomous snakes. I think in Genesis 3.15, we're to envision the lethal strike of a serpent, though. Um, He shall bruise your head, that's the victor, and then his heel, um, we, we see the victor achieves his triumph, through suffering, and I think suffering and death is the implication. Adam and Eve are are going to live in a broken world, and everybody from Adam and Eve are going to live in a broken world. Mm. But the promise of hope for the broken world and for our sinful selves is coming from this one who will overcome the serpent. Now, you might think, well, why was this viewed to be, you know, later good news? It just talks about here, you know, the the victory uh, over the, the serpent himself that the coming victor will bruise the serpent's head. We have to look later in Genesis 5 to see how this view of a seed of the woman to come actually took on a tone of overcoming curse and the effects of sin in the fall. Because in Genesis 5.28, Lamech fathers a son and names him Noah. And when Lamech fathers a son, he says, out of the ground the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Genesis 5.29 uses language of Genesis 3, doesn't it? Language about the ground, language about curse, language about work and painful toil. And who's going to bring relief? A son. Lamech is hoping his son will be the promised one. We know that Noah is not the Messiah, obviously. But Lamech didn't know that. And Lamech was hoping, just as others would have alongside him who feared the Lord and loved the Lord and worshiped the Lord, that they long for the promised seed of the woman to come. And that means that the understanding was that the victory over the serpent would also be a victory that had implication for the curse and corruption as a result of Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. This uh, promised victor, this what we use now, the word Messiah, this messianic hope in Genesis 3.15, I think it helps us see that we need the Lord Jesus to not only overcome the evil one himself, but to bring transformation and renewal to our sinful selves and world. And that the promised Messiah is the one that ultimately these biblical authors are calling their readers to hope in. And um, that the one who brings us relief from the painful toil of our hands in Genesis 5.29, well, that's going to be Jesus, isn't it? He's going to overcome the, the effects of the fall. He's going to reverse the curse by blessing, and, um, and, he, and he defeats the evil one. Uh, Genesis 3.15 gets things moving. You know, that's the momentum in the midst of all of this uh, judgment and consequence language. Uh, so it's good, Aaron, for us to, as readers to notice all of that, to notice the consequences that are serious, that Adam and Eve and all in Adam that have followed in this world, we all experience life outside of Eden. And uh, there are relational and vocational challenges all around us. And that only illustrates part of what we see in the broken world. 
Our hope is also specified, though, in this chapter. Um, the Messiah, the, the seed of the woman will come, and the victory over the serpent will be a victory on our behalf. It will be something that the effects of which will bring about a reversal of the curse, and uh, we could even use the word salvation. That's what, that's what would come. So that's a long yeah. answer, but that's a, that's a bit of unpacking some of this language of the Lord to the serpent, the woman, and the man, and, and how some of that ties together. Yeah. Yeah, well, going back to what I said earlier, one of the reasons I wanted to be able to talk to you about this book on the podcast is because Genesis 3 carries so much worldview significance. Uh, it's Huge. a foundational chapter for building our Christian worldview and for understanding the world through, uh, you know, through the lens of a, uh, of a scripture. And so... To make that connection, what is what is the relevance or what are the parallels between the story in Genesis chapter 3 and our own culture today? Earlier you referenced yeah. a grab at moral autonomy. You know, uh, like uh, this element there of, of, of what's happening there in our culture today, how do you see relevance and how Genesis 3 helps us to make sense out of the time that we're living in? This is a real contact point, I think, in our apologetics and our evangelism in the surrounding culture, because our culture um, is interested in things like shame. Um, it's not always placed in the right way. Uh, it's not always followed by the idea of repentance and forgiveness. Uh, but our, our culture uh, is interested in uh, shame and shaming. It's interested in labeling things right and wrong. Um, even if sometimes they're calling good evil and evil good. The employing of this language doesn't mean they, they hit the bullseye, but the, the, uh, the impulses to recognize things that are beyond the pale, you know, and, and to uh, uh, speak convictionally and, and, and boldly about that this ought not be, or, you know. Also, the idea of, um, of, uh, brokenness in the world. You know, I keep using this word brokenness or fracturedness in the world because I think it captures here that we know there's a sense in which things aren't the way they should be. We we sense a a disconnect. We're always striving for something more. We don't we don't like the way things happen. There's so much heart hurt and sadness. Um the explanatory power of Genesis 3 is big. Because competing worldviews are going to lack the kind of explanatory power that Christianity offers in looking at the world through the lens of the scriptures. One of the ways biblical theology has been described by one of my mentors, uh, Jim Hamilton, Dr. Hamilton at Southern Seminary, he says, uh, biblical theology in one sense is trying to embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. How do they look at the world? What's their perspective on the matters they're writing about? And that to do biblical theology well means we, we believe them. <laughs> we take them at their word. Like We believe them that when they are writing what is inspired of God here, these biblical writings help us see the world as reality really is. Mm. Genesis 3 is going to help us here because we have, we have an origin story. We're able to speak about God's dignified image bearers, people who have been made for glory, people who have been made to know God and walk with God and to have a life that has been held out for them with this tree of life picture in, in, the, in Genesis 2 and 3. And yet suffering and corruption, sadness, sorrow, and death, these are the things that result. How do we explain that to people? How can people uh, grasp for their own explanations? Well, I mean, apart from the biblical worldview, 
you're you're grasping for even a standard by which to say what is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we know there are some Eastern philosophies that would just deny the existence of suffering and evil. Well, mm-hmm. none of these are cogent. None of these are are valid explanations for why things are the way they are. If we will, if we will consider the explanatory power of Genesis 3, we realize we really have something to say into this cultural moment because the Bible says something about shame and right and wrong and good and evil. The Bible says something about uh, God's good design being corrupted and uh, resulting in the sorrows and sins and griefs of the age. The biblical uh, authors give us the compelling story of the world. Now, Genesis 3 is like that scene in a movie that if you were like, oh man, I'm out of popcorn. I knew I should have gotten a bigger bucket. Let me run to the lobby. I'm going to go to the stand real quick and I'll come back. Genesis 3 is the kind of scene you don't want to miss and then come back. Because the the way the world is in Genesis 2, if you just flip to Genesis 4, you have an older brother murdering his younger brother out in a field and saying, "Who am, am I my brother's keeper? And, and you're like, what happened? You know, what happened between Genesis 2 and Genesis 4? Um, it's that scene in the movie that helps make sense of what follows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, movies have these kinds of scenes, some kind of pivotal dialogue exchange, some kind of action sequence, some kind of just maybe even a small uh, thing that in the in the later uh, episode, later um, uh, minutes of the movie, you realize, boy, what happened earlier was really important. And I didn't even realize how important until now. Yeah. Um, so in these ways, I'm trying to show that Genesis 3 not only has explanatory power for the biblical storyline to show what happens between chapter 2 and 4 and then everything that follows with the scripture, Genesis 3 is relevant to our daily lives because we face the conviction and guilt of sin, uh, the shame of decisions that we make, the the efforts to try to cover ourselves and uh, to hide among the trees of the garden all over again, so to speak. Um, th- there is a sense in which our human condition is just laid out for us with what happens in Genesis 3. The, the sadness of conflict in marriages and the grief in childbearing, the uh, challenges with vocations and work, um, the the uh, world in which we live, the biblical authors are in touch with it. They're, they are not aloof. They are dialed in. They are speaking about reality as it is, and they're giving us explanations about what has happened. And I think every worldview has to answer questions like that. Questions mm-hmm. like, you know, where did we come from? What has gone wrong? Uh, is there any hope? Is there any life after death? These are kinds of questions you hear um, from time to time that worldviews need to be able to answer. And I think that's yeah. right. What should Christianity offer to that second question? What's gone wrong with the world? Well, the compelling explanation of Genesis 3. We have turned from the Lord. And in our folly, we have chosen our own way. We've rejected God's wisdom. And sin is a self-destructive path. It ensures our corruption and sorrow in this age. And it leads to divine judgment. Um, and therefore, it's the worst of the worst kind of things we can do to live in rebellion against the Lord. Um, and that means uh, Genesis 3 is relevant for the scriptural storyline and for our personal lives. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, you know, like you said, there's uh, this is the scene in the movie that explains a lot. And so we could keep going on and on. But we're running out of time. And so before we go, I just wanted to circle back to something that you said earlier that I thought would be a good place yeah. to uh, – 
you know, finish on. And that was where you talked about uh, Adam and his commission in the garden to work it and keep it. And what Mm -hmm. that meant in terms of the sacred space and what that meant with those words together. Uh, So if we just go back to that and talk about the relevance of that command to Adam on our Mm -hmm. lives as Christians. Yeah, so we are called a kingdom of priests in um, 1 Peter chapter 2. This language of priestly concern over something that is uh, a dwelling of God is employed by Peter, and he borrows from Exodus 19 because the Israelites were called out of Egypt to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And and Peter is saying to the Jew-Gentile church in Christ, you are that. You are that. You are the kingdom of priests. You are a priestly nation, a holy nation set apart for God. And that means uh, one of the implications is that we want to we want to attend to and guard and love and cultivate the sanctuary of God in a way that brings honor to God. And and I think an immediate application is well that means holy living. That will mean the work of of sanctification. It'll mean turning from sin. It'll mean repenting of sin. It will mean trusting God's promises. It'll mean praying uh, before the Lord that we would delight in what is good and love what is wise. That is one of the ways we, um, that is one of the ways we honor and revere the Lord who indwells his people by his spirit. As we remember back, as I said, in Genesis two, it was such a significant space because there the Lord would walk with Adam and Eve, and of course that's anthropomorphic language. It's a way of saying he he's present with them in a very special and, and manifest way. He's dwelling with Adam and Eve. They come to know God and they commune with God. Our lives as disciples are pe- as, as people who commune with God. We are those who know God in Christ his Son. And by the Holy Spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and we are to live as holy temples of God and dwelt by His Spirit. Why? Because the Garden of Eden uh, was echoed in the construction of the tabernacle, which was echoed and continued in the construction of the temple, but which was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who Himself dies on the cross and the curtain of the temple is ripped from top to bottom, and the purpose of the temple and all of its sacrificial system is brought to a completion. And his spirit is poured out upon the church, so that the spirit indwelled church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God, and we are to uh, we are to live holy lives. And and that that's one immediate takeaway, Aaron, uh, for for how that language could apply to us in this day. Once we remember what Adam was to work and to keep, and why, and what's the present redemptive historical situation now? Well, you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit, hmm. and uh, man, the implications for our personal lives are huge. The implications for our personal ministry is huge. We are to bring honor and glory to God by seeking to revere him and live set apart lives to work and to keep them. There are no doubt other implications, but that's at least a huge one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot more uh, to be unpacked from Genesis three than we have time for in a, in a one hour podcast. So for you guys who are interested in hearing more, uh, pick up the book. It's called short of glory, a biblical and theological exploration of the fall. If you're interested in getting a copy, I will also have it linked 
in the show notes. So click on, click on the link below in the description and you can go to my website to see the show notes and I'll have it there. So you can pick up a copy for yourself and, uh, and, and read all, uh, everything else that, uh, Mitch has uh, accomplished in this book. It's a, a very valuable work. So, uh, Mitch, just want to thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast today. Before we go, can you, thank you. tell people how they can uh, follow you or uh, stay in contact with you? Sure. So um, you can find me online um, at a Substack that I'm I'm trying to be weekly investing in, uh, and it's called Biblical Theology, and um, that's uh, MitchChase.substack.com. I think is the the full. Um, Full, uh, web address, but I'm tr- I'm writing weekly there, just trying to encourage readers and build us up in the faith, and uh, by trying to observe things in the Bible that will uh, nourish us and, and challenge our thinking. Uh, so if you like that kind of thing, then uh, maybe check out the Biblical Theology Substack. Um, I'm on Twitter at Mitchell Chase. Uh, that's my Twitter handle at Mitchell Chase. Um, so join join with me there. I'd uh, I'd love to um, have you uh, connect in those ways, and um, if if that's a, a blessing to you and the writings and encouragement to you well praise god i would love if that happened great well i'll have your twitter link and i'll also have the Substack linked in the show notes so you guys who want to follow mitch you'll be able to find his links in the show notes so go there and you'll be able to uh see his writings and follow him on twitter and so on so yeah well once again thanks a lot for joining us uh i really appreciate it this is a fascinating conversation and uh just an excellent book you've done a great work So thank you for joining us on this episode of Filter. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up with ladies from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.